I want to get doomed. I want to get doomed. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that the is that the theme song to Dune? <laughs> the day before, I was so pumped to see Dune. I started singing that. Wow, man! I wish that had been the theme song to Dune. It's uh, I want to get doomed, and then in parentheses, theme song from Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Right, the hits keep on coming. Secret Movie Club Podcast 92. Just eight to go, baby, till 100. It is wonderful to have everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about Pedro Almodovar. As Connor always says, our first Pedro Almodovar podcast, definitely not our last. Uh, Mr. Almodovar is easily considered one of the living masters. So this is not the Pedro Almodovar podcast, just the first one. And we're going to key it off on uh, Law of Desire, a movie he made in 1987. Who is with us today? Hey, it's me, Carnival Aid Cruz, the people's champion. Well, America, still playing my zippo wire. Yeah, so you should all feel safe, America. And I am Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. That silence you hear is the absence of Daniel Ott yet again. He is on a shoot, and we wish him the best. He will be returning. But, Daniel, do good work. We miss you. We miss your calming voice. We miss Daniel's calming diplomatic voice. I, I, I don't miss him. Which was the uh, fourth leg to the chair. The chair wobbles a little bit, but we are all here. This week, Secret Movie Clubbers, this Friday, we are going to be watching, hey, Remember that podcast we did last week where we were talking about genres we didn't like? Today <laughs> is we're doing two rom-coms. So two people you won't see there are Edwin and Connor, but you will see me there. We're doing Four Weddings and a Funeral and About a Boy on 35. I love those two because they actually show you Hugh Grant's different speeds. Four Weddings and a Funeral was the movie that made him a superstar. And it's a great movie. It's a totally fun rom-com and inaugurated that sort of golden era of British rom-com of the late 90s, early aughts. But Hugh Grant, I think rightfully, felt a little hemmed in by it because suddenly he was playing the, oh, I just want, uh, like sort of the British Jimmy Stewart. I don't know what you would call it. (laughs) And Hugh Grant was like, I'm an actor. And he got in some trouble, actually, which may have been the best thing that ever happened to his career. He got in trouble picking up a prostitute. You guys, you may not, I mean, Connor had been born. I don't think Edwin had been born, but he was dating Elizabeth Hurley and got in trouble because he was in Hollywood and picked up a prostitute on So I don't know what he was thinking, how that was not going to get back to people. (laughs) But he had to go on an apology tour for that. It uh, clearly tanked his relationship with Mrs. Hurley. But uh, what was interesting was after that, the industry, weirdly, almost maybe because it had to, allowed him to start playing very conflicted characters. That's where you got him playing the more devilish, narcissistic, self-absorbed. And now he can play any role he wants. And now he can play character. He does Paddington, too. He does whatever. And you see, he's like, wow, this guy is really good. (laughs) He can do a lot. That being said, we're showing Four Weddings and a Funeral and About a Boy, which I really love. I don't know if you guys are High Fidelity fans, the John Cusack movie. I am. Yeah, it's a great movie. Stephen Fears directed it. It launched Jack Black about these three guys who are clerks in a vinyl shop. And really, it's a breakup, heartbreak, get back together again movie, John Cusack romantic comedy. But written by Nick Hornby, About a Boy is a Nick Hornby movie as well, where Hugh Grant plays. He's on narcissistic, self-absorbed Hugh Grant speed. He's a man boy, doesn't want any responsibility. And then through some lies, finds himself being a father surrogate. He doesn't want to be to a boy. And I love that film. And then tomorrow, both on 35, two, I feel underappreciated, underrated classics. Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight 
basically you'd have no Oceans trilogy without Out of Sight. Where Soderbergh came back, he's having fun again. It's George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez, based actually on an Elmore Leonard novel. A great double bill would be Jackie Brown and Out of Sight because, Edwin, do you know why? Of course I know why. Because Maya Keen makes an appearance in that movie playing the same character he plays in Jackie Brown. Edwin just schooled me. He knew. Michael Keaton, I think one of the only times this has ever happened, two movies directed by two totally different directors, but written by Elmore Leonard, and Michael Keaton plays the same character in both movies, and it's actually a real delight. You're like, oh, that's weird. And then we're showing Lust Caution, one of my favorite Ang Lee movies. It's NC-17, one of the few movies I've ever seen where the director and writer worked out how to make sex scenes work and not slow a movie down. To slow a movie down is probably the wrong word, but like when you see sex scenes in movies, usually you're like, the music starts, especially in American movies, and they're slow-mo and they're silhouetted or whatever. But in Lust Caution, there's like mega graphic. That's why no one under 17 will be admitted. But they actually are about character, and they actually forward the story. It's kind of a miracle. And the Lust Caution is about these Chinese resistance fighters during World War II who are planning the assassination of a Chinese collaborator with the Japanese. And to do that, one of their own seduces the Japanese collaborator, and he's a fascist, basically. And they're trying to get him in a vulnerable position to kill him. And so it's a fascinating movie on all levels. Come see that. And then President's Day, we're doing Young Mr. Lincoln and Lincoln. Young Mr. Lincoln, one of my favorite John Ford films about probably almost the entire movie never happened. It's very much probably none of these things were really Abraham Lincoln's life. But it's about Abraham Lincoln as a young lawyer in Springfield. And it's very much a prequel or origin story. You could call it Lincoln, the origin story, the Casino Royale of Lincoln movies. He meets uh, his wife, Mary Todd. You see the heartbreak. This stuff is true. His heartbreak and Rutledge. You actually see him encounter Stephen Douglas, who he is going to go head to head for in the Senate campaign later on. It's really sort of funny. It is Lincoln origins, but it's great. I love it. Henry Fond is great. And then Spielberg's Lincoln which I am a huge fan about the uh, making of the 13th Amendment, uh, written from a Tony Kushner script adapted from Doris Kuhn Goodwin's Team of Rivals. So if you want to just see two great movies on Lincoln, join us President's Day at the Million Dollar Theater. Then on Wednesday, open mic short night. And Edwin, I'm going to tease something. I have a short that I'm going to play, and you star it. And it fits our theme. It fits our love theme. What, what, what is it? Oh, you'll find out. But you may want to be there, Edwin, because you're the star. You can't hide behind your lobster-like shell anymore, Edwin. We're going to reveal the soft interior, the emotional interior that is Edwin Caesar Gomez. So anyway, I'm teasing that. That's open mic short night, February 2022. That's uh, Wednesday the 23rd at 8 p.m. Please submit your shorts. We'd love to have it. And then on Thursday, Daniel Lott's birthday. We are uh, celebrating by showing the documentary American Movie, one of the great recent documentaries about this guy in Wisconsin who, like all of us, has dreams of making feature films. His journey, though, is a little more honest than probably the way we view our journeys and comical, uh, amazing doc, uh, and also part of our Daring Doc series. So there you go. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can check out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com. movie audience. We're going to be talking about Pedro Almodovar, and we're going to start by talking about often considered maybe his best film of the 1980s, uh, Law of Desire. It made in 1987. Three of us are here, Edwin, Connor, and Craig. Two of us have seen the movie. One of us has not. Take bets now. 
Audience, let's see if any of you have been listening to the podcast, which one of us didn't see the movie. Here we go. But let me set it up. So Pedro Almodovar is often considered one of the living working masters put up there with, you know, everyone has their own list, but Wong Kar Wai, David Lynch, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Richard Linklater, Mike Lee, just people who've been working now for about the Coen brothers, 20, Spike Lee, 20, 30 years, and just have amassed a body of work that most people will think. Okay, at this point, that body of work is going to stand with Fellini and Bergman and Hawks and Ford and Chaplin and Lang, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Pedro Almodovar is really interesting. He was born when Franco was still a dictator in Spain. He's a Spanish filmmaker. But when Franco died and things started easing up, Almodovar was one of the first, maybe the first filmmaker in Spain to really take advantage of the new freedoms and made LGBTQ movies before anyone else was making them. He actually started as a punk underground filmmaker in the late 70s, early 80s. This is not really an apt comparison, but initially he was almost looked at as a shock filmmaker along the lines of John Waters' 70s work, like Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. His movies were really shocking people with their open sexuality, their queer themes, and they seem to just be sort of irreverent about everything. He's maintained that irreverence to this day. But over time, his talent as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, on the level of a Hitchcock, on the level of somebody who really gets all the aspects of cinema, which was obvious from the beginning, it's only grown. In the 80s, he slowly transitioned from underground, transgressive movies to movies that weirdly started to move inch by inch into the Spanish mainstream, not because Spain wanted them, but because the rest of the world discovered it. And the rest of the world was like, this guy's an auteur, this guy's incredible. And then Spain realized that the voice of Spain was Pedro Almodovar. Probably no one was more surprised about that than Pedro Almodovar. But Spain, bit by bit, in that ironic way that things happen, now Almodovar is a Spanish institution. There are probably, at this point, more transgressive, more shocking filmmakers working in Spain and around the world. Almodovar is is moving into sort of the wintry, sort of older perspective now. But the movies are still incredible. His most recent film, Parallel Mothers, starring Penelope Cruz, is being revered around the world as like one of his great melodramas. We're going to start by talking about Law of Desire, which is actually a great movie because it's a movie that sort of straddles both eras. Right after Law of Desire, he's going to make his breakout hit, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which was more or less an out-and-out screwball comedy that all took place in an apartment and just really got the whole world's attention. But Law of Desire stars his ensemble cast of the 80s, Antonio Banderas. This is how Antonio Banderas would be discovered, Carmen Mara, along with many players. It's a movie that actually adopts a story that he would do again and again, where the main character is a filmmaker, a film director. That is clearly a stand-in for Almodovar, and he would do it again in Broken Embraces. He did it in a recent movie I love, Pain and Glory. And that care he did it in Bad Education, another one that I love. So often when the main character is a filmmaker, you're trafficking in more autobiographical territory. Not all the movies are autobiographical. This movie deals with murder. deals with many, many themes that Almodovar is dealing with. There's also emotion that also deals with a sister and a brother and a would-be lover and queer themes. I liked the film. I've seen a few of Almodovar's films. I might like this one the most. I think I should see more of his 80s stuff for sure. I don't know if I have a lot of like super great thoughts about the movie. There's some 
especially towards the end setups in terms of like suspense that work really well. Edwin, what were your thoughts about Log Desire? Or do you want me to go first? I, I, got, I got this. What can I say about this? Uh, <laughs> picture. It's uh, it's obviously very colorful. Banderas is always great in a uh, Amadovar uh, picture. My my personal favorite of the Amadovar train is um, the skin I live in. It's, uh, that was a pretty good one. My favorite collab between Banderas and Amadovar, which is a fantastic picture. It's a very 80s movie that takes place in... Uh, <laughs> The, the country of the country of uh, of uh, Spaniard, you know what I mean? The country of Spaniard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah, a Doctor Seuss land? The country of Spaniards, where they all wore lanyards. Almodovar, he's fascinating because he's a filmmaker who. I want to say this the right way. I love watching him because he has gone on a a real journey. And the journey keeps going. You know, we've talked about this before. There are some filmmakers, for whatever reason, they have an incandescent period. And then all their movies after that period, they're interesting. But you don't feel that they're still, like, making their best work. Almodovar, weirdly, has somehow managed to make a masterpiece in every phase of his career. And while there's a definite continuity in his career, as evidenced by what we just said, that even just his last movie before Parallel Mothers was about a filmmaker who is dealing with aging and he's made movies about filmmakers dealing with things before. His movies have also, by and large, deepened. As he's gotten older, he's really embraced looking back at his mom, actually, and how he grew up and growing up in Franco, Spain. So he's adopted a historical element and a familial element that he didn't. And he's also, his talent with melodrama, initially, he was almost parroting melodrama. Have you guys seen What Have I Done to Deserve This? K-A-H-O, Acer, Merecer, Eso. It's an early movie of his starring Carmen Mara about a beleaguered housewife, basically. But there are moments where characters suddenly have telekinetic powers that he never explains, which is like one of my favorite parts is suddenly things move in the apartment building and there's a character who can make things move with their mind and he never sets it up and he never references it again. And he abandons that later on. Earlier on, he's almost making fun of melodrama and the telenovela and that sort of Spanish form of storytelling. And then later he gets sort of more serious about it. The movie he made right before this is the movie we're showing Matador. And Matador was often considered the very first film where he wasn't leaning hard into comedy. It's about two serial killers who they kill people by seducing them and then killing them. And then they fall for each other. So there's this great tension of like, oh, man, well, they're killers. So like, who's going to come out of this one? And it's very sexual, but very heterosexual. Law of Desire was the first film where he kind of like Fassbender basically centered the movie around openly gay themes. And there's gay sex scenes. He's clearly showing gay desire. He's showing also, by the way, gay relationships, gay dynamics, and he's not sugarcoating them. He's not like, you know, one of the things, and I've talked about this a lot, I love Fassbender's Fox and His Friends, and I love Almodovar movies because they show what I would imagine dynamics in an LGBTQ relationship are, the good, the bad. You know, people can be very emotional. They can be very giving. They can also be very petty and selfish. They can also be very possessive. They can also be in the relationship for sex. They can also be in the relationship for emotion. They can also be in the relationship and not know why they're in the relationship, just like a heterosexual relationship. This is one of the most difficult things to talk about. And Connor and and Edwin, I don't know if you guys want to jump into it, but right now you're going to hear this podcast in February. 
And February is Black History Month. And I have actually actively not programmed black films just in February because I personally find Black History Month to be offensive. And I get my cue from Morgan Freeman. There's this famous Morgan Freeman quote going around. I don't know if you guys have heard it. It's an interview where this interviewer asks him about Black History Month. And the interviewer is Jewish. And I say this as a Jew, so I hope people understand him. And he's like, oh, how do you like Jewish Holocaust Month? And the interviewer is like, well, what do you mean? We've got to talk about the Holocaust all year round. And Morgan Freeman's like, yeah, exactly. So don't pigeonhole my people to one month. You know, he's like, we should be talking about black culture all year round. And the interviewer got really huffy. And Morgan Freeman was like, how would you like it if there's like a month where supposedly you celebrate my people and then it's okay not to talk about it for the other 11 months? This was from a few years back. But anyway, the point being, you guys can take that or leave that. I think there's a real danger in movie making where when you're talking about LGBTQ issues or minority issues or any issues that you don't show it the way it is. And Almodovar, like Fassbender, like Spike Lee, by the way, shows black culture or gay culture or whatever as they live it, as it's experienced. And I think then give all the characters their full humanity. Whereas when you see these movies made by non-gay filmmakers or non-black filmmakers, sometimes they can be didactic or one-sided or not fully dimensional. And I think that Law of Desire is a fully dimensional movie. It's a crazy movie, by the way. And we haven't even gotten to the point that one of the characters is a transsexual prostitute played by Carmen Mara. Is she a prostitute? I thought she's just an actress. Or an actress. I'm sorry. Forgive me. But she's transsexual as well. And she's given her full humanity. 30 years before trans issues really came into the mainstream here in America. So, I mean, Connor, you you can take what I said. You can reject it. I saw you wince a little bit. I think these are really controversial things to dig into. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I love Almodovar because I felt like he's committed to making movies about the LGBTQ experience as it's lived by LGBTQ folks. I wasn't really wincing at the Alma Devar stuff. I don't really have a huge issue with what Alma Devar has done when it comes to like the LGBT stuff. I, I actually agree. I think that like, if you're talking about the fact that like some of these characters are kind of negative, <laughs> like I think that's like an interesting space to explore. I was personally wincing more at the um, Black History Month, Morgan Freeman. Thing. Yeah, I, I think that when you I mean, I'm just looking at our calendar and like there's no movie here with a black person in it at all. As a lead, I'm looking at like the previous month pretty low on that list. I'm just saying like if you're going to do the bit about like we got to do it every month then you, we should do it every month. That's totally fair. I think this is something that's very much on my mind. For whatever it's worth, we're working on a retrospective in the summer on a black filmmaker. And we also have a number of things that are coming out in the spring and in the fall. I guess maybe I have to look inwards on that and I should be called out on that. But I suppose that if you're going to be an inclusive programmer, you need to be, I guess my point was that you have to program year round. There's a danger to here's the month. So now we're going to do the movies in the month as a way of virtue signaling. But then we did it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that's been a big issue with pride month last couple of years is like all the corporations that month will like change their little logo to be a little rainbow. And then uh, that's pretty much it. And then next month they don't really 
doesn't really matter. And I want to take myself to task. I actually, I really, I want you to keep that in because I think you're right. Um, we haven't programmed a black directed or black starring film for a few months. And we need to be. If the point, if you're a humanist filmmaker or you're a humanist programmer and your belief is that everyone is sort of a neighbor, part of the community, then you've got to have those movies routinely programmed. And so maybe, not maybe, we need to do a better job of it. I'll work to do a better job. We did have Bad Boys 2 last month, so. (laughs) No, it doesn't count. I mean, it's directed by Michael Bay. That almost cancels out Will Smith, Gabrielle Union, and Martin Lawrence. does this thing that I think weirdly works and it's not something I think I could do all that much or I want to do. It, normally I don't like it where it's very meta. So Law of Desire is about a film director. Isn't he working on something for his sister that's a play? It looks like he goes between plays and movies. Which is what Almodovar does. Law of Desire opens with the premiere of either a play or a movie. I was kind of unclear, to be honest. And then the meat of the movie is this new play starring the sister. And the end kind of starts setting up that they're doing a movie with the sister. Yeah, which is something I've noticed that I've seen him do because I've seen The Skin I Live In I've seen All About My Mother and I've seen Talk to Her. And I feel like most of those, maybe not The Skin I Live In, but I remember the other ones, I feel like I remember having those sequences or maybe I'm getting them mixed up. No, no, they do. They do. Talk to Her very famously has a mock silent film sequence with a very famous image of a man disappearing into a part of a lady's body. But he he's frequently does that. One of my favorite Almodovar, Edwin was animating this. I actually tend to like the dark Almodovar movies the most, but that's just me. I think the warm, melodrama, female-centered, affirmative movies are amazing. But I find that I like when he goes dark. And he made this movie, Bad Education, that starred Gael Garcia Bernal about priest molestation at a Catholic school. But it's, again, the format is... There's a director, and he is sort of at a crossroads in his life, and someone comes claiming to be a friend of his from his Catholic school days, and he's not sure if this person is impersonating his friend because he had heard that maybe his friend, had, it hadn't worked out, or if it's really his friend. And then he flashes back to when he and his friend were attending this Catholic school, and his friend got molested by a priest. And how that sent his friend on a whole different trajectory than he went on. And it's a very dark, strange picture that deals with, again, LGBTQ themes and themes of the Catholic Church and themes of dictatorship and themes of crimes being covered up. But it has that thing of a director telling a story, looking back, creating a work of art. And I think that Almodovar returns again and again to this idea of how personal experience then becomes the stuff of art. And then let's talk about Antonio, very young, hot Antonio Banderas in this film, who actually plays a sort of ambivalent role in it. He almost reminded me of like a Hitchcock character. Oh, totally. Almost like the Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo, but I would say more negative. Yeah, somebody riddled with anxiety and ulterior motives and reasons for why he's doing what he's doing that are not for like love purely. Or they're for control and manipulation. So yeah, narratively, the background of the film is this film and play and that kind of stuff. But the plot is that this young gay man, played by Antonio Banderas, becomes obsessed with the director and starts trying to insert himself into his life in escalating ways. Well, one of the things I've always found interesting about Almodovar movies that I actually really like, I think it's really honest of him, is that often when the movies have that surrogate director character, 
character. That character never has a long-term relationship. Like, that character always is basically alone. His real relationship is his art. This is even Pain and Glory that starred Antonio Banderas a year or two ago, where this director character gets hooked on heroin (laughs) because he's got chronic pain. And then he's visited by an old lover, actually, and that old lover jumpstarts his return to sobriety and return to an ability to create. But the director in the end of Pain and Glory is alone, nevertheless. And I watch the movies with the director, and the director always ends up alone. It's really interesting because Almodovar is capable of such warmth in his pictures, especially the female-driven pictures, which is interesting. But when it's him, he always portrays himself as basically a more comfortable alone solitary, has a number of relationships, but never a marriage. Because that's another danger. When filmmakers have a character that's clearly them, their surrogate character, that character can often be a cipher or not like a fully fleshed out or three-dimensional character. One of the interesting things that a lot of directors fall mistake to is they either make that character too heroic or actually too unlikable. They're not able to make the character fully fleshed out because they're too in their own head about how to portray themselves. I thought he's done a good job from the ones I I've seen of, of walking that I totally know what you mean there are times where the alter ego feels very much so like all right buddy like you're <laughs> you're you're bragging but he leans further towards the unlikable side to a certain degree but he gets it right I think it's very sad I haven't really noticed that pattern because I don't know if I've seen enough of the ones that fall into that but that, uh, that makes me sad for him. It's something you can't help when you've seen a lot of them. Well, I was going to mention another movie that did that, where the actor is playing the director in a different way, and that's Orson Welles' uh, The Other Side of the Wind, where John Hewson is being a filmmaker, directing this movie, and it's obviously you could tell he's playing Orson Welles. You know what's funny? He's not playing Orson Welles. He is, he is. You know, that's that's not fair. He is, but he's also playing someone else. John Hewson was obviously playing Orson Welles because he's trying to get this film made. And next thing you know, in a strange coincidence, Other Side of the Wind was also trying to do the same thing, get this film made and get it released, and now it did years later. No, you're to- Edwin, I'm, I'm so sorry. You're totally right. The dynamic between Houston and Peter Bogdanovich in that movie is exactly the dynamic between Orson Welles and Peter Bogdanovich. It is very autobiographical, so it was stupid of me to say that. Um, just so you know, though, like, Welles wasn't a gun nut. You know how the director character fires guns and all that? Welles was basing the character partially on Ernest Hemingway. And you know how the movie deals with and eventually reveals that the director has some very closeted gay feelings for his lead actor. That comes from Hemingway. Hemingway was, it was theorized that Hemingway famously had a lot of bisexual feelings and his macho persona was a cover or a beard for his inability to deal with his bisexuality. Something that Wells commented on because Wells got into a fistfight with uh, Hemingway because Wells called it out and Hemingway freaked out when they were both doing a documentary about the Spanish Civil War. And Wells pretended to be one of Hemingway's young male protégés. And no one had ever done that. And Hemingway took a swing at uh, Orson. And Orson and he patched it up. But um, I live in a love a lot. I saw it on cable. I remember being freaked out by it. But when you played it at the Vista, I stayed through the whole thing. That movie blew me away how insanely good that movie is. How it's a really, I know, f***ed up revenge story. And it's like how far you'll go just to, you know, get your vengeance and do this thing to this person. And next thing you know, just like end up falling in love at the same time. But it's all just a cover. 
but I think it's like the most shocking movie that he's ever done, and I and I really love that movie, and I kind of wish you would program that one, program it again, like I did, where I got it on thirty five millimeter and showed it at the Vista, as you just acknowledged. Yeah, you should get that print again. So that way I can see it again. Yeah, no, The Skin I Live In is one of my favorites of his. That's him in a very dark mode. Also, something that doesn't get talked about as much maybe is what a visually talented filmmaker Almodovar is. Connor was referencing it. He is very Hitchcockian. And those sort of vibes, Connor, those intimations of Hitchcock are not by mistake. He's extremely Hitchcockian from the music to the credit sequences to how there's like suspense that pulses through a lot of his movies. Those strains are the stuff that I find the most interesting. So I'd love to watch more of his stuff and especially any of the films that kind of lean more into that. Yeah, well, if you're looking for the Hitchcockian leaning films, see Live Flesh, see The Skin I Live In, see Bad Education, see Matador. Those would be the ones that lean maybe the hard, and Broken Embraces, actually. They lean the hardest into the Hitchcock. I met him. He's one of the few directors, and, and Mead is stretching it. I was at the New Art seeing a documentary called Tarnation with my sister, which is a, this amazing documentary this filmmaker made for $300 just editing footage in iMovie of him and his mother. And Almodovar famously had a very complex relationship with his mother that he memorialized in numerous films, including Pain and Glory. And we're walking out, and I turn, and I'm like, is that Almodovar in Santa Monica in West L.A.? And it was. And I said in very broken Spanish, I'm so sorry, Mr. Almodovar. I just want to thank you for making great movies. I don't want to take any of your time. He was with two people. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for making your films. And he was so generous and so kind. And he looked at me, and I can't remember, because I think he speaks English. I can't remember if he said it in English or Spanish, but he said something like, oh, thank you very much. And I like felt this generosity from him. I gave him a hug, and he gave me a hug. And he looked at my sister and I, and he was like, you know, that's really kind of you. Thank you guys so much. And I was like, no, thank you. I don't want to take any more of your time. Have a good night. But it was a really genuine experience, and he was genuinely kind. And he genuinely understood what it was, and he was not put off. There was no attitude. And I was actually very moved by it. And I was like, wow, he didn't have to do that. You know, he really wanted to make sure that we had a moment and that he acknowledged, and he was grateful for the. So, I mean, that's how I encountered him in real life. I was very taken aback by that. I've mentioned her before. I dated a woman all throughout my 20s by the name of Jessica, and she and I broke up and got back together three times. I remember there was almost a fourth time, and her friends, this is not, I'm not exaggerating here, her friends literally stood up and built a wall between us at an event so that, like, she and I wouldn't get back together. And that was right. I think she met the man she's going to fall in love with, and they've been married, they have a kid. But she, Jessica and I got back together again, like, three times, and I remember that every time that Jess and I would break up, I weirdly would see the next Almodovar movie on the day we broke up. I have no idea why that was, but I saw Live Flesh, which I love. It's got Javier Bardem, and it's a great movie. Very melodramatic about these twists and turns in Madrid, and they're cops, and there's a guy who becomes paralyzed, and it's very hot, very steamy. That's one of my favorite Almodovar's live flesh. Then I saw Talk to Her, I think, <laughs> when Jess and I broke up a second time. But the final thing I'll say about Almodovar, and we'll just have to do more Almodovar, is Almodovar made this very crazy movie, another one I love called Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. That was rated NC-17. And a lot of people thought he jumped the shark. They were like, oh, he's just being shocking to be shocking. What is this movie about? 
It was about a guy who kidnaps a woman and then they fall in love, sort of Stockholm syndrome. And then he went and he made a few movies where people felt he had lost his way, a movie called Kika. And people were like, oh, he's lost it. And then he made this movie called The Flower and My Secret. And then he made Live Flesh. And suddenly he came back. It was almost like a resurrection or a Phoenix thing where he fell off the map for a few years and people thought, well, that's the end of Almodovar. And when he came back, he was much deeper much more profound, and his palette was much richer. And so he's a real fascinating person. You know, uh, people said that about Spielberg at the end of the 80s. People felt that, oh, Spielberg's fallen off. You know, he's just, he's lost it. People felt that about Scorsese during his run of bringing out the dead and gangs in New York and the aviator. They were like, oh, uh, there we go. No more rich Scorsese. And then suddenly he came back. So Almodovar fits that pattern, too. Anyway, final thoughts on Almodovar, guys? Good guy. God bless him. Absolutely. God bless Almodovar. Watch his movies, guys. He's one of our living greats. Pop culture final thoughts. Edwin. Watch a bad Van Damme movie. I hated it. Kind of regret watching it now. It's called Double Team. Pure trash. Is that the one with Rodman? Yeah. You won't believe how many basketball puns that man has said in that movie. And how every scene... His hair changes to a different color. Like, how do you have time to do that? That's what I want to know. Well, he did that in real life. That's an illusion. Rodman was always done that. He played for the Lakers for a while. Also, I watched a movie at the American Cinematheque called Hester Street, which is like right up your alley there, Crego. Oh, because it's about a Russian family, Russian Jewish family, my, my mistake, that take place in New York City back in like the 18... 18- Oh, nice. Like an immigrant story? Yes, an immigrant story. With starring Carol Kane, who is fantastic in that movie. And it's very Jewish. It's a very Jewish movie. Like, it's insane. As soon as I watched it, like, I said to myself, Craig will like this movie. I know one Jew in my life. Boy. <laughs> also, I rewatched, um, I rewatched a great movie, but I don't think I can, I don't think it can be shown again. Uh, I watched The Usual Suspects. You mean you can't watch it because of Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer? Yeah, but I watched it. I loved it either way. It was a great movie. I still like that movie, even if it was made by a bunch of creeps, but it's fine. <laughs> I mean, the problem, the problem with that, Edwin, is, you know, it was written by Christopher McQuarrie, you know, who's gone on to proving himself to be an incredibly adroit storyteller. So you could show it for Christopher McQuarrie. Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, Gabriel Byrne. But that's a whole conversation. I've been playing Fire Emblem Three Houses again, making some anime kids fight. I don't know how to explain that game succinctly, so I'll leave it at that. And you can check me out at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. So I am trying to catch up on, I've said this before, on new music, on new movies. I love pop culture. I think it's important to try not to fall out of the pop culture stream because it does help you to, and, and it's never hard if you just commit to it. I think it's important not to try to pretend that you're not the age you are. I think it's a mistake to be like, I'm going to talk to the kids like I'm 19. That's a mistake. I don't try to do that. But I do go, hey, let's give it a shot. And I was just telling Connor, I've listened to these tracks, one called Duck, Duck, Goose by Cupcake, then two tracks by Megan Thee Stallion, Savage Remix, which has Beyonce on it, and then one that Connor would have to bleep me out, but it's called Thought. Then uh, Cardi B, we were talking about her song, WAP, which is the initials W-A-P, And I'll say that the first one, W stands for wet. You can figure out what AP stands for, or maybe you can't. But I was listening to them, and they're great tracks. I mean, they're great beats. Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and Beyonce, obviously, are ridiculously talented at what they do. 
But then also, too, I was like, man, I'm thinking critically because they're singing and expressing pretty crude and explicit desire. And I was like, why is this striking on? Like, why am I thinking about this? And I was like, oh, because men have been doing this for 50 years, but you never hear a woman on a track doing this. And I was like, is this feminist? Is it anti-feminist? Is it neo-feminist? But it succeeded in what it was trying to do, because then I was like thinking about it. And then I was like, well, F, you know, they can do whatever they want, just like anybody can do whatever. It's a free country. And if this is their genuine, you know, if this is how they're feeling. And the other thing that was interesting is it's not female desire as expressed from a male fantasy viewpoint. I think the other thing when you listen to the songs that's really fascinating is they're telling the men, you better step up. And they're expressing things that men hate to be expressed. Like, they're expressing things like, you may not be up to the task. Like, I need a guy who can go for a long time. I need a guy who's going to understand me. And I need a guy who's not afraid to, like, learn how I work. I was like, oh, they're bringing it. Oh, snap. You know, this is stuff guys don't like to be reminded of. This is stuff that guys have tried to bury in pop culture, which is that often it's not women who have the issues. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. But anyway, it's really fascinating. So (laughs) that's my 44-year-old take on Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and Beyonce. Hell yeah. Uh, That's all the time we have for today, folks. Our next podcast, Secret Movie Club Podcast 93, will be next week. It's going to be Jean-Luc Godard. We're going to be talking about Band of Outsiders, which famously inspired Quentin Tarantino to name his production company after it. And Quentin Tarantino uh, routinely has gone on the record as saying he feels he was America's Jean-Luc Godard. You can see if you believe that or not. I think he's mellowed off that as he's aged, but there are some interviews from his 30s where he's very adamant about that. But Jean-Luc Godard has influenced everybody from, you know, Martin Scorsese to Hal Hartley to Quentin Tarantino. I mean, Godard's influence is all over. Everything after Godard has a bit of Godard's influence. That's how influential he was. So we're going to talk about Jean-Luc Godard and Band of Outsiders for Secret Movie Club Podcast 93. As always, this was edited by Chief Creative Content Officer Connor Lloyd Cruz. It's wonderful to have you guys. Next time, hopefully, we've got Daniel Ott back in the fold. Tonight, we would love to have you. We are going to be showing Four Weddings and a Funeral and About a Boy. Tomorrow, we're going to be doing Out of Sight and Less Caution. You can get tickets on a Eventbrite. You can find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. By the time you hear this, we should have our entire March announced, as well as finally, finally, our big event at the beginning of May. And uh, that's it. As always, thank you. So much to talk about. Not enough time. I will see you in a week. Have a good week. Love you, family. Goodbye, citizens. I haven't seen House of Gucci, but I did see a clip for the first time of Jared Leto's voice. Oh, I saw it too. Where he's like, you need to know the difference between the shit and the chocolate. Oh, man. They may look very the same. And I was like, jeez Louise. <laughs> what a choice. And then another way he goes like, it's a me, Paolo. Like, yeah. Ah. Mamma mia.